welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 14, Facework and Therapy. Okay, today's um, lecture is as crucial from a technique point of view as last week's one was crucial from a theoretical point of view. Because last week I was talking about uh, transference and the way that the past shapes the present moment and how it is that you could discern or pick up on the fact that transference was at play and that there was some historical influence on what was going on between you and another person right now. The, today's lecture is about, well, what do you do when things from the past are not just in the room in a theoretical way, but they're in the room in a very powerful way that is impinging strongly on you in a way that makes it very difficult for you not to react, feel threatened, or judge the other person, you know, condemn, see them as morally reprehensible. Okay, so in other words, how do you handle um, the transference? How do you keep in place what we call a containing environment? You remember last week I told you about the little boy who finally had the guts to get angry at someone and uh, what a therapist is supposed to do is make it safe for the person to feel their anger, fury and rage, even to express it quite directly and that it's still quite safe for them to do that, that you're not going to tell them to go to another therapist or judge them or see them as um, morally inferior people because they get outraged. I was really pleased um, reading on Facebook that the, no, it might have even been the Sydney Morning Herald, actually, it was the Sydney Morning Herald, that the Dalai Lama apparently loses it every so often when really little things go wrong. And I thought, nice, nice one, Dalai Lama. You know, he's just let us all off the hook. If even he sort of loses his temper occasionally, we're suddenly very safe. I also need to give you a slight warning about today's lecture in that at one stage I'm going to tell you in a fair degree of detail about uh, what's called a crisis in the subjectivity of the analyst and I'll be using Jill Straker's paper to exemplify that and her paper is about vicarious traumatization. In other words, when you are a therapist that's working with people that have been traumatized Sometimes what they will do is they will reenact the trauma in a way that traumatizes you. And so I'm, I know I'm one of the biggest wusses alive, but I find that paper of hers just terrifying to read. And I'm going to be telling you the crucial central bit of that paper, sort of as a sneaky way, not too sneaky because I'm telling you, but as a sneaky way to get you to read it because it's so powerful and it shows you how just how political and transformative and courageous the act of being a psychoanalyst can be. You tend to think of them as kind of bourgeois, conservative people sitting in nicely decorated rooms and getting paid a lot of money an hour. But in fact, it can have quite a different face to it. So, so I'll give you that um, trauma warning again um, just before I tell you the, the descriptive story today. So face work. In a way, what I'm doing today is wrong because I'm focusing on the face but actually, a client or a patient is actually going to be tracking every little bit about you, whether your foot is twitching, whether you suddenly you sort of almost go to check your phone, right? Whether you sort of get restless and change in your chair, 
um, whether you sit at a different distance from them the week after they've told you something that they experience is shameful. Every little bit of your behavior is going to be tracked. So when I say face work, it's actually body work as well, space work, as it were. But I'm focusing on the face because the most has been done about that from a really uh, fascinating scientific point of view, and that's what I want to sort of explore today. Okay, it's a term that I thought I had invented, which is really tragic. You know, every time you think that, you know you're so wrong. And then I discovered Irving Goffman had written all about it in 1950 and, <laughs> and really written all about it in the most fantastic way. And um, heaps of other people have written about it from that sort of sociological tradition. There's only about one article within mainstream psychology which uses the term face work, which is called getting out of hot water face work in social situations. So, but I really love the, the notion, and I'm, so I now pay homage to Irving um, Goffman. Okay, so what I call face work is when you, have, you know what's going on within you, but you don't show it. So it's knowing, but not showing what you feel. And that's tricky. Because if one way not to show what you feel is for you to try and avoid knowing that you're feeling something, you can't do good face work. Because if you avoid knowing what you're feeling, it's more likely to display itself in your body. As Freud says, if a man feels guilty, it chat but doesn't want to show it, it chatters out his fingertips. You sort of see the guilt, right? So you want to go, okay, I'm feeling guilty, so I'm not going to have chattering fingertips today, right? So you, you have to really do the impossible. And face work is precisely this. It's a skill. It is something that you can learn. And it's something that I think we'll do need to learn if we're going to be good therapists. Uh, some people have got a head start on us, um, but they don't necessarily have what it takes to be a therapist. Machiavellians are very good at this. Psychopaths are really good at this. They don't make great therapists in my experience, but okay. So in other words, the same skills that these antisocial personality styles that I study, that they have, we also need to acquire to a degree to be a good nego hostage negotiator or a good therapist. So you want to be able to modulate the expressive display. You don't want your fingertips, fingertips to chatter. You don't want to sort of show horror and shock. You don't want to show judgment and disapproval on your face. You don't want to distance yourself or even lean back in your chair if someone tells you something that's a bit confronting. But you also have to modulate the inner impact of emotion sometimes. If someone is telling you something that's really quite horrifying, that's really quite traumatizing, to be able to stay present to them and available to them, to be a sort of containing presence for them, you can't reel away in horror at what they've just told you. Okay, so if someone is describing in fair detail the process of their harming themselves, and they're saying, my friend jokingly said, you know, that I'd be a good accomplice in disguising that a murder has occurred, and you know what that means, right? You have to stay present. You can't go, oh, God, you know, even if you're a wuss like me, you have to stay there because they can sense if you withdraw um, at an interpersonal level. Okay, Facebook also occurs when you display emotions that don't arise 
just from the spontaneous interaction that you've got with your external or internal environment. Okay? So when you're, when how you display emotions doesn't just arise spontaneously. Let me give you a really famous example. Ekman in 1972 showed people a fairly challenging, traumatizing film that had war scenes. And he had cameras directed on the audience. And in one instance, the audience didn't know that they were being filmed. And in the other instance, they did know that they were being filmed. And what he found was that when people knew that they were being filmed, they modulated their facial displays so that they didn't reveal at the facial level their responses to these quite traumatizing images. And he found that there were quite big cultural differences in the feeling rules because he compared uh, Japanese students with American students. And in fact, the Japanese students, when they didn't know they were being filmed and they were watching the film in the dark, had as much facial display as the American students. But as soon as there was any kind of public requirement or public visibility, the feeling rules are much greater for the Japanese people to absolutely not show any emotion um, so that you didn't impinge on the other person and intrude on them in a sense. So feeling rules are a form of input. Like if you've been taught um, how to display your grief or how to display your sadness, you've absorbed that as part of growing up in a particular culture. So in other words, what I'm suggesting is that there's this kind of intermediate phase of coping and that's where the skill can happen because you can consciously bring certain beliefs to bear on your emotional experience but if you haven't got the skilled actions it doesn't matter that you've got all these beliefs oh I shouldn't impinge on the other if you're not skilled enough to control your action um, you won't be good at face work Okay, so I have a set of beliefs about not impinging on the other, but I, I have a tendency to um, squeal, unfortunately, when I get surprised, like, ah, and which is something that my daughter and her friends have discovered and enjoy immensely. But that makes me not that skilled, unfortunately, because I shouldn't be showing, you know, spontaneous surprise in certain situations. I should be able to bring that under, you know, skilled action, you know, under control in a sense, and I'm not able to do so. Now, the sorts of beliefs that one could bring into play would be beliefs about what might hurt another's feelings, about what the situation requires, or that one might get fired if one shows um, certain feelings in a particular situation. So what skilled action requires is that you've got to bring under expressive control expressive movements that are just part and parcel organically of being in a particular emotional state. In other words, all of your history has wired you to feel like running when you're afraid. And all of your history has wired you um, to feel like drawing closer to something that you're, draw that you're attracted to. And sometimes you need to bring that under expressive control. Now, weirdly, today, I'm sort of suggesting that we have to be able to dissociate. Dissociation's not usually something that you're told to do. It's usually seen as, as something that one does in the face of trauma, of overwhelming stimulation. But actually, I think there are forms of dissociation that are what it takes to be good at face work. 
And so we need to be able to do it consciously rather than unconsciously. We have to take emotion apart, in a sense. And that's what people like Julia Roberts can do. And not just because she's Botoxed within an inch of her life. Botox, of course, is the intervening variable these days with facial expression. Okay, so one of those smiles is called a genuine Duchenne smile, and the other one is not. Which one do you think is the, the more genuine smile? Yeah, and why is that? Yes, yeah, the one on the left is more controlled. The, the one on the right is a bigger, more instant action. That, that's right. Absolutely, what else? Her eyes are crinkled, exactly. And that is the, that's the dead giveaway. That's the ocularis, or no, I'm going to forget the name of it, the ocularis muscle. <laughs> anyway, that's, I think, C5. And uh, the other one is C12. Like, if you learn how to code using Ekman's facial expressions, just having you smile like that, which lots of little kids do, don't they? Smile for the camera. Right? Great, non-Duchenne smile. But then if, if your eyes get involved, the crinkling of the eyes, that's a more genuine smile. Okay? And often, and this is a sad thing for me to share with you, but if you look at um, little kids that often don't survive and you see pictures of them in the paper while the people are searching for them, like Keisha, for instance, you see those early pictures of her in her home environment. The, the mouth is in a grimace of a smile and the eyes are just haunted and tormented. There's nothing crinkling around here. It's, it's a, a really powerful giveaway that the person's not you know, fully experiencing the emotion that they're wishing to make you believe that they're experiencing. And there's all sorts of reasons why they might wish you to believe that they're experiencing full happiness. This, believe it or not, I've just been reading the history of this guy. Duchenne was his name. That's Duchenne that you can see on the right-hand side. And what he's doing is he's applying electrodes to the discrete facial zones and facial muscles of a poor fellow who had experienced some nerve damage that was so extensive that none of his face responded anymore to his inner bodily states. He, he had a sort of corpse-like visage. And so Duchenne used this poor fellow um, to demonstrate that you could create every expression known to humans um, using the right combinations of electrodes. Why they would use Duchenne's name for the genuine smile when this is how Duchenne produced emotion <laughs> beats me, but that's the way it is. So apparently he was quite on the fringes of things, but, but uh, Charcot in particular was really obsessed and fascinated by Duchenne's work. So what I've tried to convey in this course is that affects have a signature way of capturing your body, your face, your breath patterns, and your glands, like your hormones. In face work, this package of feelings, emotional expressions, bodily responses, all these things that should go together in response to being in a particular affective state, they come apart and they're reassembled flexibly. It sounds quite false, doesn't it? It sounds quite artificial. But when you get good at it, it's quite seamless. So in face work, what we do is we uncouple what we feel about a situation we, we uncouple what our body is telling us about a situation, what we think and what our affects are doing to us. So in other words, someone might be telling me something utterly terrifying 
And I've got to make my expressive output conform to my top-down commands. In other words, because I've been to some degree trained, I know not to show certain judgmental emotions, okay, or to abandon the person through my own fear. And so theoretically, I know not to show those emotions and roughly know how not to express them either at a bodily level, at the level of my face, or at the level of what I say next. You know, the implicit content of what I say next, I have to control that as well. Um, so it means that you're kind of a bit frozen in a sense. Okay, I'm now going to give you the traumatic example. So I would like you truly to brace yourselves if that's okay, because this is unbelievably full on. But it is just too powerful an example for me to bypass. Okay, so here's the story. Um, my friend, Jill Straker, has been an analyst for over 30 years. She was born in South Africa and... Having initially left in 1978 because she got offered a job in America, she decided she couldn't stay out of South Africa. She felt she owed something to the country, and she went back, even though she found it very difficult to live under apartheid, which is where there was a kind of a hierarchical ordering of people based on the colour of their skin. So there was um, white people at the top, then there were Indian people, then there were other coloured people, and then there were black people. And it was treated as if it was a natural order and there's nothing natural at all about it, but it was completely imposed. And your access to things like the waves at the ocean or playgrounds were determined by this. And if you were on the border, they had what was called the pencil test, such that if they could put a pencil in your hair and it fell out, you were white. Okay? If they put a pencil in your hair and it didn't fall out, you weren't. Okay? So some people in the same family would be categorized differently based on these sorts of things. So it shows how absurd the definition was. Anyway, Jill was working with uh, some of the people that would be seen as freedom fighters, like French resistance fighters that were fighting against apartheid. But some of them belonged to the ANC, and therefore they endorsed the use of violence okay, to bring to an end, via civil disobedience, the, the capacity of the, the white apartheid government to control the, the townships where black people lived. And so they would make the townships ungovernable as a form of protest. Sorry, oh, I find this sort of quite tough. All right, so uh, in this paper, Jill talks about the fact that one night she had the television on in the background and she suddenly turned her attention to it because a young black woman, uh, Maki Skosana, was being murdered on the TV. And what had happened was that she was a suspected informant to the apartheid police of a freedom raid that was going to occur. And what it had enabled the police to do was to booby trap the hand grenades that the young freedom fighters, black freedom fighters, were going to use. And it meant that as soon as they pulled the pin, the hand grenade exploded. So they didn't successfully, you know, bring about the chaos that they wanted to bring about for the white government. So this led to the loss of a lot of young lives of fairly dedicated freedom fighters. So they decided in the course of uh, this sort of meeting who was to blame, and they set off to find her. And the violence against this young woman escalated to such an extent that they, they killed her 
by necklacing, which is where there is a tire around the person's neck and it's on fire and the person dies, which is just, you know, unthinkable. And in the course of working with this young freedom fighter, my friend realises um, that he was one of the guys that was involved in this murder. And there's a twist, there's a, an unthinkable twist to the story. So my friend is trying to stay present in the face of, you know, the most extreme horror imaginable with great difficulty because she's traumatized. So she can't think. Like that's one of the things that happens. You actually can't think. You can't, your cognition escapes you. Um, you're not yourself. You're actually in an altered self state. And so to try and stay present to this young man was enormously difficult. And he, he goes through a series of emotional experiences in the course of telling it. At one stage, he's just filled with excitement and a kind of jouissance, like an almost sexualized excitement about the death of this young woman, which is traumatizing in the extreme to, to bear witness to. But then he's talking about the fact that when her hair was burning, he felt this enormous fear. And he thought, perhaps it's not right to take human lives, no matter the cause. And, but at that moment, he imagines that my friend, his analyst, is judging him for not being courageous enough. He's imagining that she is stronger and more brutal than him, and that she sees this sign of fear as human weakness. So she's being completely misrecognized in the situation. And so she talks in the paper, it's a really fabulous paper, about this notion of um, different self-states, which is something we haven't really spoken about, but we will speak about, which is where there's a sort of dissociation of certain parts of who you are. And so you're not a totality any longer. There's part of you that might feel compassion for the young guy, part of you that feels utter condemnation and horror, part of you that feels completely disillusioned because he was your hope for a bright, new, free future, and you wanted him to be a noble freedom fighter, and instead he's involved in atrocity that's you know, of a similar order to that which apartheid was visiting upon people on a daily basis. Okay, So in other words, there's nowhere to be. There's no one self for the analyst in that situation. They're all over the place. And there's a beautiful book by Mark Epstein about how to fall apart without going to pieces. He talks about the fact that it's very difficult to have a sustained single moral stance when you're capable of taking so many different perspectives, when there are so many different vantage points in any given situation. But what you've got there is someone who is able to suppress her horror, able to suppress her judgment, but she does so to such an extent that she becomes a projection board her neutrality, her neutral face, becomes a projection board for his fear that his human response in such a moment was a sign of weakness. And she had to bear him imagining that she could feel that. Okay, so can you see the sort of courage? You've got to allow yourself to be really misrecognized by the other in order to know more about the other and to stay present to them. And so she, this is, a, I think, an incredibly moving paper. It's an, it's an incredibly extreme paper, but it gives you an idea of sometimes just the challenge that is imposed upon you. Are you okay? Are you still breathing? Yes, right? 
pretty full on stuff. Sorry about that. But it's a very, very powerful, very political example. And I think many people, like a lot of people, particularly philosophers, speak to me and say that they think, you know, psychoanalysis is somewhat indulgent, somewhat bourgeois, not really on the side of social transformation and political change. And I personally don't think that that's the case. I don't think that utopias can be brought about without psychoanalysis, because I think whenever you try to institute a utopia at a political level, ordinary old human desire and meanness and power and charisma comes into play. And, and utopias have a very short life, if you've ever read about any of them that have you know, been started up in various parts of the world. They all come a cropper, big time, for the reasons of sex, aggression, power, hierarchy, yep, etc. So, what gets uncoupled when we do face work? Well, we've got these basic affect programs and they normally integrate our bodily expressions of emotion. And let's just revisit that if you can bear it very, very quickly because it's quite crucial. It's one of my favorite kinds of issues in relation to philosophy of psychoanalysis. The body is incredibly powerful. We come into the world motivated and we've got two basic clusters of motivational systems. We've got the drives, and I suggest we've also got the affects. Not everybody agrees with me, and you know that. Then some people think there's only drives, some people think there's only affects, and a few odd people, like me, think there are both. Okay, you also come into the world with a certain kind of temperament where you've either got a predominance of activation, like me, because you squeal if you get surprised, or if you know a, a car sort of backfires in the, in the vicinity, or you've got a predominance of inhibition, which is an amazing advantage if you've got to do face work. Now, what this contributes to our personal experience is that changes the body that we have to inhabit. Some people don't have to work so hard to master sensation because they're, they're slightly more inhibited. Someone like me has to work very hard and um, because that somatosensory basis of bodily experiences talks quite loudly to me. But that's an advantage if you want to know what state you're in because the body's there telling you, clamoring. Now, not everything that you experience at a bodily level becomes mental experience. I'll never be able to read off what my sugar levels are doing or what my insulin levels are doing, okay? I'll never really be able to know what my hypothalamus is doing, right? Even though it's underpinning some of my psychological experience, it's not mental for me. Okay, now what I'm doing here is I'm absolutely stealing a model from a, a really beautiful article by Lambie and Marcel, which is also a really huge article, 2002, Varieties of Emotional Experience. And this is the way that I have kind of summarized a, a sort of 50-page article into about three slides, okay? So I'm, I might have lost a bit of the detail, just to let you know. So what you've got at the bottom are what, what's called somatosensory stimulation. In other words, stuff that your body's telling you to do, stuff that your senses is telling you about the external environment. Then you've got action tendencies. That's, that's what those bodily things are telling you you should do with those with that stimulation. Then you've got your manner of attending to that bodily clout. Unfortunately, lots of people think if I don't pay any attention to it, it'll go away. Is that the case? If I don't pay any attention to the bodily stimulation, what am I more likely to do? Absolutely, well done. I'm much more likely to act out. Avoidance also is unfortunately linked to 
the intense sense of the here and now of flashbacks and PTSD. So avoidance looks like a good idea. Current research suggests avoidance is almost never a good idea. It comes back to bite you in various ways. So your manner of attending can either be ruminative, you know, where you really get caught up and re-immersed in the emotion and you know, why is it happening to me? And yeah, or it can be reflective. And reflective is the one that I think is the most artful because it's the reflective capacity to attend that means that you can know what's going on, but you don't necessarily show what's going on and you don't necessarily act out. So to be able to be, have a, what's called a reflective encounter with one's desire, to have a reflective encounter with one's desire is what you aim for. And that's from a book by Ozieu, who's a beautiful French writer, psychoanalyst. After you've attended to it, either reflectively or ruminatively, you can usually work out what's the meaning of all of this for me. And that's called an evaluative description. In other words, okay, this is a really scary situation and it's dangerous and it's likely to get more dangerous, right? That's kind of an evaluative description. That comes milliseconds after the rest. The body gets in so fast and you're, you sort of, you know, you sort of know at some pre-reflective level what state you're in. And then there's that kind of more conscious appraisal of meaning. But if you had to wait for the conscious appraisal of meaning, you'd have stood on the snake, you'd have been eaten by the bear, you know, you would have spent so much time working out what was going on that the room would be fully on fire before you ran to do anything to it. So emotions are quick and dirty and fast and more or less hardwired, but highly skilled actions look like they're hardwired. In other words, if I'm, if I'm so well steeped in the feeling rules of my culture, as soon as I feel an intense emotion, I'll hide it. And I'll be so expert at that, it's almost as if I was born that way. Okay? And then, the, the final stage is that you can have conscious mental experience of what's going on. You can do what Jill's doing, write a beautiful paper about the state that she could barely think in when she was actually in that state. Here's the same diagram in another way, because this is the kind of way I talk about it. You've got the bodily clout of affect, which is the startle, or you know, running towards or running away from, or leaning back in spite of yourself when you want to distance yourself. Then you've got sort of what I call chunking it into emotions. And by and large, my culture gives me certain categories for my feelings. Yeah? So in the West, we've got dependence, and that's kind of one word. In Japan, they would have about, about 30, 35 words for that dependence. You know? I will impose on you even though you don't really quite want me to. Um, I will impose on you precisely because you've refused my right to impose on you. Okay? The Japanese have got words for all of those. So how you chunk things into emotion is largely, you know, influenced by your culture. Then you've got to find words for the meanings, for the particular cocktail of emotions that you're in right now. And that may never have occurred before in your culture, but you have the words to say it that your culture has provided you with. So the example I gave you, I think, was thunder in my soul, where there's the woman who's really angry about the history of wrongs that have been visited upon her nation, her First Nation peoples from America. 
the feminists say you're always angry. She goes, okay, I'm not going to be angry. I'm going to have thunder in my soul. I'm going to stay furious at the sort of the wrongs that have occurred in the past, and I will hold on to that. Then you may or may not be consciously able to feel that, because a feeling is always conscious. You know that you're in a state. And then it's whether or not you may share that to another person. Can you see all of the little layers about something that we just call emotional experience? But it, you can take it completely apart. So when I say that Facebook dissociates, what I mean is you may reflectively be able to attend to the bodily clout but not find words because you're traumatized, but you manage to reflectively attend so that you don't act it out and expressively demonstrate it to the other, okay? Or you may thoroughly know exactly what state you're in, but you're the therapist. It's not up to you to share what state you're in. It's, you might know and use that to inform how you treat the other, but you're not going to talk about it. You're not going to disclose it necessarily, okay? So just trying to show how complex emotional experience is. So what I've told you is that drives are kind of like these sources of policy that mean that you're not neutral about reality. All the bakery stores, where did they come from? Just because you're hungry. In other words, all these little relevant bits of reality just sometimes leap out at you because of the drive state that you're in. So in other words, the drives influence what you notice. And they're also caused, they're underpinned by neurobiological mechanisms. But what's weird is that these neurobiological mechanisms, what state your glands are in, as it were, what neurotransmitters are running through you, they actually shape your thought. They influence what you think about and what you're motivated to go find in the external world when you want to find the whereabouts of something that's going to satisfy those drives. But what today is about is that we come into this world wired for the average expectable environment. But drives are not these immodifiable things. We can modify and learn so that we can fit the actual environment in which we find ourselves. So in other words, you've got these biological propensities, but they're just very broadly specified. Eat things, you know. <laughs> yes? Have sex with things. Run away from things that might eat you. Okay, that's very broadly specified, but the fact that it's Johnny Depp that you really like or someone else, that's much more uh, narrowly specified by your cultural experience. But what I want to say today is that what Facebook does is it actually enables you to become a little bit inhuman because it enables you to say stop to something that you're hardwired to do. And I think that's actually quite a remarkable achievement. Now, you know, for example, um, that hunger is underpinned at this neuro neurophysiological level, but then we come to experience the bodily clout of that. It's a physiological process, but we have a feeling, gosh, my stomach's rumbling, I'm hungry, and that motivates your behaviour for you to do something about it. But as you know, it's not all just bottom up, it's not just, oh, you know, my tummy's rumbling, I'm hungry. I can walk past a shop and go, hmm, orange and poppy seed cake, I'm hungry. So external processes can also activate your motivation. That was Lecture 14 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. 
Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.